The podcast under the stairs. Void diary entry number 11. Fear isn't so difficult to understand. After all, weren't we all frightened as children? Nothing has changed since Little Red Riding Hood faced the big bad wolf. What frightens us today is exactly the same sort of thing that frightened us yesterday. It's just a different wolf. This fright complex is rooted in every individual. Alfred Hitchcock Some of my films that have gotten the worst reviews are the ones they keep talking about today, so it's hard for me to really assess the long-term effects of them. I can't take it too seriously. Basically, you're being judged against the fashion of the day, and, of course, the fashion of the day changes all the time. So what endures is what's important, I guess, and I am very fortunate that I have made movies that seem to have endured. Brian De Palma You're listening to Druid FM on 192 BC. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 49. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to my show. Episode number 49 promises two fantastic reviews of what I consider to be two classics. I know certainly one of these movies is uh, is very much held in um, high regard and rightly so within not only the film community but the horror community but the other one I think is a forgotten masterpiece I think people sometimes forget to give it some love so uh, later on on this show joined by my good friend uh, Mr Johnny Krug from uh, Kruger Nation and we are going to be looking at Psycho and Dress to Kill by Alfred Hitchcock and Brian De Palma, two powerhouses of um, cinema. I mean, um, when you look at the back catalogue of both directors, I mean, it's difficult to dispute that Hitchcock is probably one of the greatest directors that's ever lived. Um, Maybe his films haven't worn the test of time, but certainly he is one of the most influential filmmakers that has ever lived in terms of how his legacy has lived on through multiple genres. Um, Equally, Brian De Palma, I I think, um, is one of these guys that sometimes, maybe not so much now because he has established himself with some great works, um, but when he started off, when he was doing some exploitation cinema, some thrillers, um, some weird and bizarre little shit, um, I think he got unfairly pegged as being some sort of Hitchcock rip-off artist, which I don't necessarily think is fair. I definitely was heavily influenced. The man agreed himself. He was heavily influenced by Hitchcock, but I can't really say that he, he ripped the guy off. Um, and with that in mind, <laughs> the pairing of Psycho and Dress to Kill seems apt, because when Dress to Kill came out, people just said it was De Palma ripping off Hitchcock. So, later on, myself and Johnny Krug, we're going to be sitting down and talking about these films and giving you our opinions on what we think of the movies first and foremost, but uh, touching on the the old uh, accusations of plagiarism. Um, also on this show we have another Bazzy's at Basement where Baz is going to return to address some questions and give you advice directly from his home in the basement. As well as that, he's also going to be announcing the winner of our Rec 4 competition. That's right, you had a week to basically let us know whether he wanted the Blu-ray or not, um, the prize being a Region 2 Blu-ray of Rec 4 
the final instalment in the Wreck franchise. And uh, yeah, um, we're going to be announcing the winner later on this show. Very much looking forward to that. If you've been doing the math, you'll know that episode number 50 is coming up. I posted recently on the Facebook page that when that show drops, you are in for a treat. Um, I'm bringing back two former guests from this year that I've really enjoyed speaking to. Mr. Jeffrey X. Martin, um, the guy behind the Kiss the Goat, uh, the Six and a Half Feet Under um, podcast, as well as Cinema Beef and Not So Evil Episodes, and his compadre on Not So Evil Episodes, Mr. Doug Tilly, who also helms the No Budget Nightmares podcast. The three of us are going to be sitting down looking at what, once again, I consider a woefully underrated um, spiritual trilogy of movies from a maestro of Italian cinema. Uh, We're going to be looking at Fulci's The Gates of Hell trilogy, which will cover reviews of... City of the Dead, The Beyond, and The House by the Cemetery. So you are going to be in for a treat with that one. It's a trilogy I've been wanting to talk about for absolutely ages, but you need the right group of guys to do it. And um, if one thing has been taught to me recently, I think the best conversations on Italian cinema that I've had seem to come out when X is in the room and Mr. Doug Tilly is as well. So that's coming up very, very soon. There will be um, two shows in between then, though. Um, One will be a a smaller bonus content show, which will be an interview conducted with myself and uh, Graham Humphreys, the the horror artist, which was recorded just over a month ago. I've uh, I've been trying to uh, catch up with my shows so that one can finally drop. He is, of course, the the gentleman that will be designing the podcast under the stairs poster, which you guys will be able to buy approximately end of April, beginning of May time. So uh, that was a great conversation, and we just uh, had a lot of fun shooting the shit about horror, chatting about his upcoming works. Um, A lot of the announcements have since been announced, um, just because, you know, I've waited so long to to put the show up. So that's a great one. That'll be coming up as a, a smaller bonus content. Um, as well as that, you'll be getting a catch-up between me and the bars where we're going to be sitting down, going through some of the horror movies that we've seen of late, talking about what we've enjoyed, what we didn't enjoy, uh, what we would recommend and what we would tell you to avoid. Um, it's been a while since we did something like that between myself and the bars, so um, it's more just touching base and letting you guys uh, catch up with what we've been watching um, and hopefully prompt some discussion over on the Facebook page um, as to what you thought of those movies and uh, you know if there's any you haven't seen that you quite fancy checking out or things that you want to tell us to check out if you've seen something let us know there's been quite a lot of that on the Facebook page recently which I've quite enjoyed um, some titles that I hadn't heard before some that I had um, and hearing your opinions on them has been uh, quite cool um, also, myself and uh, Mr. Andy Blockley from the Big Horror and Little podcast recorded a Legion Quickie, a kind of small uh, podcast which is exclusive only on the Legion Podcast Network, where we both reviewed um, the new movie, uh, Clown, the new horror movie, which is, of course, famously produced, um, I'm being sarcastic now, <laughs> by Eli Roth, although Eli Roth seems to be getting a lot of credit for that movie where, mm, I don't know, uh, he, he certainly helped him get off the ground. I don't necessarily think his name should be emblazoned on the front. But um, yeah, if you want to hear what myself and Andy Blockley thought of that movie, check out that Legion Quickie over on Legion Podcast Network. Um, so plenty of stuff coming up, loads of things happening. Um, this show has got a ton of content coming up in April, which I'm really looking forward to putting out there. Uh, also, you guys voted on mass. 
um, and you have selected that the next roundtable will be a look at the collective adaptations of Stephen King. So that's Stephen King books that have been turned into movies and TV shows, which is a massive task. Um, it's likely going to land sometime about June, just because we'll all have to catch up with a lot of research. And I can announce my special guests for that show. Um, Mr. Danny Trioxon from The Midnight Horror Show, Mr. Corey Graham from Evil Episodes and The Electric Chair and Devil Horns um, podcast as well as Mr. Bo Ransdell from Duncan and Bo Come Correct Graveshift Radio he also does Devour the podcast and Schadenfreude Gaming so that should be a great discussion it's going to be lengthy probably even longer than the Carpenter one thanks very much for that guys uh, for, for setting that huge uh, massive task for us all to sit down and do but I'm looking forward to it so I'm going to jump out just now uh, you're going to hear some promos for shows that I love you are going to to hear the trailer for our first movie review which is of course the classic psycho hitchcock's massive classic from 1960 gonna be right back to talk to you about that right after this my name is x and i'm cootie please consider us your high priest and priestess of satanic cinema Join us on our podcast, Kiss the Goat, which will drag your soul through some of the finest and worst devil movies of the last 50 years. Devils and demons, exorcisms and possessions, cults and rituals, dogs and cats living together. Is that a devil movie? Maybe. Sort of. I don't know, babe. We'll talk about it later. Join us on the Horrorphilia Podcast Network every other week as we don our hoods and cloaks and kiss kiss the the goat. It's a hell of a good time. I knew you were going to say that. Of course you did. It's in the script. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful, thought-provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities? Then you've got the wrong show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com. Here we have a quiet little motel, when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. Can you have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know, this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, uh, that must be my mother. She's run away. Put me down. Mother, oh God, mother. What are you running away from? She looked like a wrong one to you. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. 
She just goes a little mad sometimes. And welcome back. So you've just heard the trailer for our first movie review. This is an icon of cinema. Um, arguably the one that people think of the most when they hear the name Hitchcock is of course 1960s Psycho. In order to undertake this movie review, um, I have brought back a former guest from this show, one of my favourite guests, in fact one of my favourite people out there in the, the whole uh, horror podcast community because he approaches it with uh, the right ethic, uh, an ethic that I think we all need to get behind, which is movies are fun, you need to enjoy the movie. Um, so, it is my privilege and pleasure to introduce the man behind Kruger Nation Horror Podcast, it is of course Johnny Krug, how you doing sir? Good, hey, how's it going man? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. It's great to have you back on the show. I love coming on here, dude. This is this is my favorite show to come on. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. And I picked a picked a cut. This all stemmed. It's funny. I always seem to whenever I'm getting you on the show, it always seems to be something that you've posted that gives me an idea for a show. And then I'm like, Johnny, do you want to do that? You're always like, hell yeah. So in the case <laughs> of this one, you posted a figure, like a fake, like collectibles figure, which was a uh, Michael Caine in the wig and dressed to kill. And I was like, that is so Spoiler. Fucking... Oh, so, oh, oh, my God. Oh, no. The shame. Uh, so, yeah, you posted that. <laughs> I should have really put a spoiler on it right there. Uh, but you, you put that up there, and I was like, that is the coolest collectible ever. I would have that in a second. And then I was like, Dress to Kill. That's a movie I've not seen in a wee while. I was like, I really want to talk about Dress to Kill. I should really have Johnny on to talk about Dress to Kill. And at the same day, I bought a Blu-ray box set of, of Hitchcock, which had also arrived, and I want that... Dressed to kill, psycho, psycho, dressed to kill. Yeah, that needs to be done. Uh, and then you, obviously, you agreed, uh, which is uh, which is awesome because I can't wait to talk about both of these movies because uh, Psycho, which is the first one we're going to talk about, that is really, I mean, I, I, I'm saying it's an icon of cinema. I'm maybe not necessarily doing justice to how important and big that movie is. I think everyone is one of these things that... Even kids that have never seen Psycho know what he 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 means. They, they, <laughs> they instinctively know that means a stabbing motion without even seeing the movie. That's how much of a, a kind of pop cultural reference that movie has become. Well, um, it's been parodied. It's been parodied in like everything. Yeah, like pretty Sim- much. The Simpsons. I mean, every show has pretty much done some kind of parody. Yeah, at some point we always get that. And obviously it's become a bit more prevalent now that we have TV shows like Bates Motel, which are giving us the, the origin story of, of Norman Bates and, and whatnot. That's become back... And we'll, we'll skip over the, the, the remake. <coughs> we'll, we'll not talk oh, about well, I thought we were talking about the Gus Van Zandt masterpiece with Vince Vaughn. <laughs> Is that not what we're talking about today? You know, the awkward <laughs> masturbation sequences aside, no, Johnny, uh. it's... it's, it's <laughs> no, it's a shame because I have actually already. I did that in my top ten uh, best and worst remakes. You know, I've never seen that. I've never watched it. I, I have you not? I, I I just for some reason I I hold Psycho in such high regard. I mean, that's kind of a spoiler going into it, but yeah. um, it shows my hand. But I I just can't <laughs> for some reason. I mean, there are remakes that I will give a chance to, even stuff that I love. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Wicker Man. Um, and they may not hold up to what, what I expect them to, but yeah. Psycho for me was like the one you, you just can't touch it. Yeah, it's the fact that they it's the fact that they they didn't just touch it. They decide they decided to do it 
shot for shot almost. So it is, I mean, the, the, the even down to Van Sant like, has exactly the same camera positions, has the actors speak in exactly the same... You could almost run those two movies side by side and everything happens at exactly the same time, except for two like little diversions, one being the the when he's peering through the hole, he's he's playing with himself. <laughs> uh, and he put that in there, and I, I mean, as ridiculous as it said, because obviously it's a remake and all the rest, but um, that's apparently more prevalent in the book. So he tried to put more to the book, but it just feels so forced and not needed. But the movie itself feels forced and not needed. Uh, there's something pretty magical about that fucking movie. And we're, and we're about to talk about it, which... Uh, which it seems seems like the right time to, 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 to drop some info on this movie. Psycho 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, the movie stars Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Garvin, Janet Lee, Martin Balsam, John McIntyre, Simon Oakland, Frank Albertson, Pat- Patricia Hitchcock, uh, Vaughn Taylor and some other folks. The synopsis of the movie, a Phoenix secretary steals $40,000 from her employer's client, goes on the run and checks into a remote motel run by a young man under the domination of his mother. Um, Johnny, as is customary on this show, uh, my my guests get to, to start off, kick us off on the first movie review. Would you like to tell us uh, a little more about Psycho and what you think of it? Well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's one of those movies that uh, you, just to look at, yeah, I know it's black and white, but visually, it's stunning as shit. Like, it looks yeah. amazing. And, and we're 55 years after the release, and I think it still holds up as far as being so so artistically shot. And everything in this movie just looks beautiful. But, I mean, that's going off on one little aspect of the movie. Yeah. But as far as Psycho goes, I think everybody kind of... Everybody kind of remembers it for, for uh, it being such a play on uh at the time it wasn't really part of the genre where you would have a twist like that like the end of this movie yeah yeah like you kind of everything was kind of straightforward and i think hitchcock really played with people um but i mean i love psycho and and you know it's funny i've seen this movie so many times and there were little things that i never noticed until this time and and it was funny to me because it was like little like jabs and things like there's a lot of things in this movie that just went over my head like there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where the the rich guy who's buying the house for his daughter, mm-hmm. he walks in and he's he's hitting on uh, uh, Janet Lee's character and and pretty hard actually, and uh, of course he's a little boozed up and stuff. And after he walks off, the other girl in the office walks up to Janet Lee and she's like, "Yeah," she goes, "Yeah, he was really laying it on thick. He wanted a piece of that action." And then she she makes this little jab where she's like, "Yeah, he must have seen my wedding ring, obviously, because he didn't go." <laughs> You know, he, didn't, yeah. he, he didn't. He didn't hit on me, and I'm like, "Whoa! I never noticed how catty that bitch is." Yeah. Oh, yeah. She doesn't like that at all. She's, she's, she's totally just like, "Why is he not hitting on me?" It's obviously a wedding ring. I had nothing to do with it. You know, it's, it's, it's really like, and I think that's the thing, though. But do you not think that Hitchcock movies in general, every character, even though they're insignificant, feels like a character? Oh, you know absolutely. I mean? And I noticed that this time more than ever. And and it's funny because it's every character. Mm-hmm. Even like even like the police officer that stops her, um, 
well, you know when she's on the when she's the, on the run, and the police officers, you get the you get the feeling that that this is a, like a fully realised character. I think that's I think that's to his credit. I think you know, like Hitchcock very much like other directors. I'm thinking like maybe people like Kubrick, uh, De Palma, who we'll obviously get onto. Um, I think they have a very singular mind of how they think everything in the movie is going to be. And that, that attention to detail is quite incredible and it, it, it gives you the opportunity, very much like yourself, when you're watching it multiple times that you can pick up on a different aspect and you get a completely different appreciation for like the subtle nuances in the movie. Um, I think Hitchcock's a ma- There's a reason he's considered, you know, like the, the master of cinema um, for that very reason. I think he, like, he just it makes it look so fucking easy. Oh, absolutely, and, and and some of the simplest things. I mean, that's why I think it, it absolutely is is crucial that you catch it at a later point when you watch it. Like every time you see it, something else kind of stands out. I think yeah. that's the thing is that he lays on such subtle, like simple things that it's easy to overlook it. But then when you really look at it, you're like, "Holy shit, that's brilliant!" Like mm. it really is. Um, there's one thing in this <laughs> in the office that Janet Lee works in that I always laugh at. Do you ever notice the scene where? Um, I'm trying to remember the scene exactly, but her boss goes into this little area and he's like, come here, I want to tell you something like kind of like a secret. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he shuts the door and the door's like two foot tall. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this, that's going to keep any, it's like a doggy gate. It's not going to keep anybody from hearing anything. <laughs> Every time I see this movie, I laugh my balls off because I'm like, yeah, that door is going to totally, that's totally going to yeah. keep your <laughs> no, secret. No, one, no one's hearing anything now. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, this movie, though, I mean, it's, it's charming. And that's, that's another reason why I never... I mean, Vince Vaughn, I, I knew of him a little bit when the remake came out, but Anthony Perkins I grew up with. I mean, I've seen so many movies with Anthony Perkins, and, I, and he's a fantastic actor. And and I think that um, even with the show, I think they've done a really good job at capturing him, whereas I don't think someone like Vince Vaughn can capture that kind of... I don't know, that, that kind of character. And, um, yeah, so they're kind of the, the boy-next-door quality. which Oh, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, especially running that hotel. I mean, once she gets there and you meet him, he's like he's nothing but charming. I mean, he's he's stuttering and kind of standoffish, but he's still charming. Yeah, even I mean, the 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 only the only indication that you get that there's something bubbling beneath the surface with him uh, from you know when Janet Lee's character arrives is when she starts talking about potentially putting the mother in the home, and you see there there is almost like the mask for that character starts to slip a bit because it goes from being like offended by the comments to being actually quite hostile with her in the way that you know he retorts back to her, and it's the first indication in the movie. Even though the movie, like, if you don't know, the, the problem with this movie is so many people know what the ending is. It's like we've said, it's been copied so many times that unfortunately, I think if anyone's sitting down to watch it now, they probably have an idea what the ending is. And that's that's a shame because when, when you watch this movie, the, they really go out their way to make sure that you don't think it's Norman's character until the point when we realise that his... And even then, when when the police officer says, you know, and I'm jumping ahead here, when the the old police officer in the town says, you know, his his mother's been dead and buried for ten years. Well, who was it we buried if it wasn't her? And then you even start to think, well, maybe his mother is still alive. Maybe she faked her death. You know, so you're still thinking that. It's you know, it's only to the point when that chair is turned round. If you don't know anything about the movie, that when that chair is turned round, that the full realization of, oh shit, it's Norman that that fully kicks in because he plays it such an incredible way throughout this movie that you feel that he's doing everything possible to protect people and his mother from each, you know, from encountering each other. He doesn't want his mum to interact with anyone because she's 
obviously a psychopath and at the same time he doesn't want any of his guests to go near her because he knows that that's only going to inflame his mother's rage about things um, I think that's wonderful I think it's so clear I mean like I say it's difficult to disassociate yourself now from that because we all know what the ending is but if you look at it from just a story point of view that is incredibly well done I mean and it's a testament to, to Perkinson's performance all the way through this movie that you, he's the last person you expect to be a killer, even when it's starting to look like he probably is. <laughs> you know, and one thing, I mean, let me ask you this. This is something I kind of only thought about this time when I watched it. Uh-huh. Do you think, like, because they talk about his mom, they, they don't they briefly touch on the fact that she killed herself? Yeah, they, they see, originally the, the, the idea was that she poisoned her lover. Uh, because she found out that he was still married, um, and then she killed herself. She poisoned okay. herself with the same thing. And and so for me, it's like I wonder if I mean they get into it further down the line with all the other movies, but I wonder just just if you take this as a like a simple one off movie, like I, I wonder if that created his sort of disconnect with reality, was losing his mom because that's all he ever had. And I yeah. wonder if Janet Lee's character, when she goes into that whole thing about putting mom in a home, I wonder if that just, like you said, it reveals the mask. It like, I wonder if it like shattered his reality, and that's why he just fucking lost it. Yeah, I think. So. Yeah, I, and then yeah, that's when it kicked in. That's you know, she really is gone. Yeah, I think I think that's the because they, they say that um, when the the psychiatrist at the end of the movie comes in and says that you know um, Norman's mother says because obviously by this point it's mother that's controlling them that Norman was the one that you know poisoned both of them he killed them both um, uh, and the, you know this is this is what ultimately and like you see further down the line in the later movies they they go more into detail about that one I think it's the it's either the third one or the fourth one where they implicitly show. The build up to that, um, I think it's the fourth one because it has Olivia Hussey plays his mom, and uh, that's right. She's very boobtastic. Yes, she is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that you know, they, they go more into to that side of the story, but you you get that impression because they they mention that there has been two people killed. The the psychiatrist mentions that there was two missing people that were killed by Norman before. And I think you're. I think it's something about the. I think it's the fact that the the Janet Lee character does get so close to the, the kind of mother aspect of what he should do with his mother. Far more personal than I would think anyone else. I think it's they, they indicate that it's whenever Norman's character becomes sexually attracted to a woman, the mother's side takes over because he can only have one woman in his life. Um, Plus, I mean, I'm not to interrupt you, but I mean, yeah. if, you, if you think about it, like you to, to what you're saying, your point, if you think about it, his mom was supposedly like a real strong woman. Yes. And Janet Lee's character is too. So that sexual attraction also is that whole Oedipus thing where it has that whole, I don't know, that it's getting into the underlying things playing in his mind, you know, with his attraction to his mother and that relationship. And they certainly yeah. delve into that later in the movies. But this one, I think it's it's very subtle. And especially when he finds himself sexually attracted to uh, Janet Lee. Yeah, the fact that yeah that, that she she does kind of on some way she takes more of an interest. I think I, I'm trying. I only saw this just recently as well. <laughs> um, the the fact that she does touch his knee at one point and things like that. The the fact that he watches her undress and all the rest all builds up. And then when the mother side takes over, she reacts in the most brutal of ways, which is like the vicious stabbing in the in the shower. And um, I, I think I've always said I think that's the. The, the genius of Hitchcock um, in that sequence is the editing and the fact that when, even I find myself when I'm watching it, 
I'm convinced I see the knife penetrate skin. And well, you, you think that, yeah, you think okay. so. You convince every time I see it, I'm like, no, there is a, at least one shot in there where the knife goes in. And, I, you know, I've went through the whole freeze frame and everything else, and I know it doesn't. You know, I've read, I've read books where it tells you it doesn't. I've heard, <laughs> like, Hitchcock even say it himself that it doesn't. But every time I watch it, I think it is, and I, I, I'm always convinced that there is, like, one freeze frame segment in there, very much kind of fight club with the, the cock and the shot. Uh, <laughs> there's there's going to be one shot where a knife's penetrating skin and it's not, and it is genius. That whole sequence is genius because you see next to nothing, which is when the second kill comes in. That second kill is so shocking because... The, the second, private detective, like the investigator? Yeah, Arbogast. When Arbogast dies... You know, she walks over and you see the knife go across, but then you blatantly see a gash on his face, and it's it, so, that's an amazing shot, dude. Like so it, good. Oh, I love, I love that sequence, and you know he's stumbling back down the stairs and the camera, the the way it's all shot and everything from that stationary shot, basically looking at the top of the stairs, and she just comes out the room from an aerial shot with a knife, um, and you see him slice, but because we have not seen any, we didn't actually physically see anyone stabbed or any of the knife wounds. And the original kill, the fact that they go kind of the opposite way with the second kill, and that we see the full motion of it, and then we see the after effect and the slice across his face, I think makes that second kill stand out even more because you just don't expect it. You, you one, you don't expect that kill to happen then, um, and the way it does. But two, you don't expect to actually see a cut on someone's face because the one that got butchered earlier on wouldn't see anything. No, it's and this clever. this movie is it's it is it's awesome. It, it, it's it, but it really the funny thing is is when you see that first kill. I mean, most people don't remember the second kill. <laughs> they remember yeah. just that that shower scene. But this movie is it really is uh, uh, what would you call like a proto slasher? Yes, Be- because just the way they frame it and and the way she rushes out and kills this guy, it, it's completely shocking. Because yeah. I don't think anybody in 1960 was expecting that. Which no, is no. is one thing about this movie that I, I read and I really appreciate is the fact that supposedly Hitchcock told theater people not to let anybody in after it started. Like, <laughs> yeah. because he didn't want anybody to miss out. Like, it was one of those things where, and, and it is kind of uh, a dick move, but at the same time, he wants his movie to be seen as a, as this whole thing. And, and and I feel like if you went into this movie and, and you came in after Chantley's death or anything like that, like, you would lose something. Yes, definitely, definitely. I think it's, it's the whole experience. Um, I just think it all, it all works together. And he obviously had this specific idea of... I'm, one of my favourite Hitchcock quotes ever is uh, the quote where he says that um, you must make the audience suffer. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's right from his word. You must make the audience suffer. And I think that's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, I, I, I just imagine... I, like I, I imagine a time where people just hadn't seen anything like this before and going in and having your world rocked to its very core by something which is, is so unlike anything that Hitchcock had done himself and by that point you kind of you knew what you were getting with a Hitchcock film there was going to be suspense there was going to be a bit of thrilling mystery was maybe a you know some sort of Jet setting killer or something like that. You kind of you kind of thought you were on safe ground going in to see this movie, and he he destroys it by doing doing so many clever things by making the killer the person that you wouldn't think would be the killer by killing off the biggest name in this movie right within the first thirty minutes. She dies, which is such a bold move. 
I oh, mean, it's being copied to death too. I mean, that's how that's how big that moment is. Is that yeah. so many movies have done that? I mean, Amanda Wiss, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Drew Barrymore, and Scream. I mean, mm-hmm. so many movies have looked at Psycho and and, and really. I mean, this movie has really set a template for a lot of movies to come. Yeah, I think I think it, it's the reason it has that iconic status is the fact that it is really. I mean, it's one. It's one of the most recognized horror films of all time. Two is one of the best shot horror films of all time. Three, um, the acting is no like we said before. There's no one in this that there is a bit of the of the time sort of acting. Well, sir, I don't know about that. You know, you see, you know that this sort of kind of. <laughs> But that's just how people talked back then. But there is an almost. I've always said that the, the class, the, the classics, the ones that um, are crafted in such a way where you know the directors on some level, you know, they have to be really good directors to begin with. But the ones that set out to make iconic horror films. That there's almost a timeless quality, uh, and there's very few that make that. You know that that kind of reserve group. You think maybe The Exorcist, Jaws, uh, Rosemary's Baby, of iconic pieces of cinema, which uh, from our genre, which just like hold true regardless who's watching them, whenever they're watching them. Cycle is very much there, just because I think. Its impact on horror after it, it changed the landscape. Horror was no longer you know, kind of goofy, you know, monsters and things like that after 1960. After 1960, the emphasis is put on the person. This the was person. the this was definitely the shock movie. I mean, when this came out, I mean, that's you're, you're 100% right. When this came out, it was all, you know, like Adam Age monster movies and it was like uh, Universal Monsters and things like yeah. that. A lot of Hammer movies and things. I don't know, Hammer was kind of up and coming at the time. Um, but the thing is, with, with this movie, it, it, you're... So right, it introduced the human monster, the the person that the boy next door is the killer, and and the thing I like about that is I I haven't read the novel, but I've heard from a million people that you know Norman Bates is supposed to be fat and greasy and kind of yeah. like uh, Joe, uh, what's his name, uh, Joe Spinell. <laughs> like, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you would expect him to be the freaking uh, the the maniac killer, and I really like that they they took this boy next door and they're like, this is your brutal fucking killer. This guy's the one, and yeah, and. and it- uh, it's just brilliant. I think it's like it's. I can't undersell it. How many movies have you? In fact, you're talking about Joe Spinell and the the original Maniac movie. There's a reason that when they go do the remake of Maniac, they pick someone who has. I mean, Elijah Wood has that boy next door quality. They chose it's a the, Hobbit, like a literal Hobbit. He's four foot tall in real life. <laughs> <laughs> He's got hairy feet. Um, <laughs> so I, I love the fact that they go down that more uh, quote unquote attractive looking person as the killer to kind of sell this believability that that there's a reason that i mean if he had been uh overweight kind of greasy looking kind of sleazy or whatever you would expect it yeah there's no way janet lee would want as a character go and have (laughs) dinner dinner with them in in a room in the back of our office it just wouldn't fucking happen no so it's it's the it is set out in a particular way where one you don't expect it two it's believable you know it's believable that that, that people would fall for this kind of charming, awkward persona that he has, just because he does look harmless. Um, I, I think it's I think it works. It works so well on those levels. I love the fact that in this movie, that, that when they decide to kill off Janet Lee's character, it's after she's decided to do the right thing. 
You know, what she, I mean? she's so going. Yeah, cause she stole the money. She's going to turn herself around. Yeah, she's going to. She's going to drive back the way she came uh, after sitting chatting to Norman and Norman basically telling her, you know, it's never too late and all the rest. And so we, you can be trapped in the hell that you create for yourself, or you can try and escape it. And she sits and she makes the decision. Right, I've only spent three hundred dollars on this this car. You know, I'm going to turn myself. And I'm gonna, you know, beg for forgiveness and all the rest. I've done something wrong, and she's she's gonna sleep on it and go. And you kind of think, well, this is an interesting turn for a movie. Thirty minutes into it, you know what's gonna happen, and then she gets murdered, and it's just like, and the fact that he throws the money in the the car as well, so that the money gets buried with her, um, because he's he's oblivious to the money. He, he doesn't. I just think that's really clever as well. I think um, even if he knew about it, that's the thing is I don't think he would care. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's not about it's it's not a killing for money. It's you know it's the fact that the the mother half of his brain is so commanding and dominant that you know she she doesn't want to she doesn't want to have to fight for the affections of her son. She just wants unconditional love from her son constantly. Um, I, I love I love the, the the sequence where he is pushing the car into the swamp, and for a second it looks like it's not going to sink. And, you know, the panic that comes over his face and we focus on it. And even you. The thing about the movie that I think is really cool as well is after Janet Lee's character dies and he's cleaning up, you still feel sorry for Norman. Because Norman's the one that's got to hide the body. Norman's the one that's got to... Norman's putting his neck on the line here to cover up the actions of his mother. Um, so when he tries to push that car and that car doesn't sink... <laughs> you kind of feel a bit panicked for Norman. You're like, oh, what, the ha- what happens if Norman gets caught? It's not his fault. It's his mother's fault. And all these sort of things. I think that's really well played as well in the movie. Um, you get Arbogast who's like... I mean, you don't have to stretch too far for a character to understand Willem Dafoe's character in American Psycho. It's, it's basically Arbogast, the, the guy who asks questions with a smile on his face. Uh, but kind of will catch you off guard when you when you let something slip out you shouldn't and I think I've always compared those two characters as side by side um, I, I think that Willem Dafoe must have seen Psycho or was uh, or was definitely you know um, bringing forth that persona into that role because that's what it always feels like because when he's he's questioning Norman and he's like that also you've not had guests in many weeks oh that's right and uh, you know, uh, are you sure? Have you seen this photo? Can I check <laughs> your book? And um, he says something along the lines of, uh, oh, that reminds me, I need to switch my lights on. There was a couple that drove past here, you know, just a week ago, and they didn't even know that, I, you know, they said that they wouldn't have realised my, my motel was open if I switched my lights on. He's like, right, see, you've just said there that just a week ago someone drove in here. Uh, you know, it's easy to forget things. And then you see from that point, Norman becomes very aware of everything he's saying. He becomes more panicked, more agitated, and all the rest. And his character's brilliant as well because he does play that kind of private detective role, but in some ways I don't like Arbogast. <laughs> no, he's unlikable he's, as hell. Yeah, because he's 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 purposely picking on a character that once again, if you take it from the point of view that you don't know Norman's a killer, is being mean to everyone well he's mean to everyone he's he's, a, he's an asshole to everyone he speaks to but um, even after he's told not to go in that house he goes in that house and on some level you're like well you've just broken into the house and you're going up there it's not illegal he, he committed a crime <laughs> yeah yeah not, not that I'm saying it's you know he deserved the death but I don't think he could can he be prosecuted for that death and breaking an enter in America I don't think he can think in America defense. I don't know because I know here there's so many dumbass stand your ground laws like if, if somebody's on your lawn and, and they're not threatening you like somehow you can kill them and get away with it 
<laughs> dumb shit ass laws like that that make no sense. It's like, well, they came on my property. It's like, yeah, were they threatening you? No, but they're dead now. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's it. No, just don't do it again now. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's awesome as well. That, you know, like the the fact that all this stuff happens. I think I think that's the the point I keep coming back to is that there's there's all there's like specific choices that Hitchcock makes for this movie, which on paper should sink your movie, should not make it iconic. One is in 1960s, nineteen uh, sixty shooting in black and white. I mean, yeah, that, that was sh- ballsy as shit. Yeah, that should one sink your movie. Second thing, killing off your your main character, your bankable name in this movie, killing off that bankable name in thirty minutes should, in theory, kill your movie. The third thing, taking such a an unassuming uh, killers don't look like Norman Bates before this. Taking the boy next door, the 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 wholesome family guy, and making him your killer should not work in a movie. You couple those three things together, this movie should have bombed and been relegated to like a B movie status. Because this is essentially what it is. It's a B movie, but for some reason, the combination of all all three of them together, the the iconic score, the 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 camera, the camera work in this movie is fucking ridiculous. You couple all those things together and you package it just the way that Hitchcock packaged it, and you make a movie that isn't a B movie, isn't an A movie that transcends all of this and becomes an icon of cinema. Um, it's just it. It's just so wonderful. It's, I, I would love to have had a chance, an opportunity to sit and speak to the man to, to just kind of get an idea. And I know there's movies out there recently. There's Hitchcock, uh, which came out, which documents the making of Psycho and whatnot. But I haven't watched those. I haven't either. I've heard it's pretty good. I've heard one of the big criticisms is that it puts too much emphasis on his wife as being the the inspiration and idea behind a lot of things. And uh, I've been led to believe that she did have quite a lot of input, but maybe not as much as the movie dictates, you know, like there's a lot of things like the the choice to kill off the Janet Lee character was apparently it came from his wife. Uh, but yeah, I, I think she had like this really apparently had quite a strong influence on how the movie took shape. I think the movie plays it like all movies do, um, as a more sensationalized version of what actually occurred. But um, on so many levels, this movie, like I say, should just be one of these ones that turned around you know, drive-throughs and things like that, but for whatever reason, it just, it becomes, it becomes iconic. It's, it's, a, it's like a wonderful movie, and everything right down to that score, the score in the movie's phenomenal. I, mean, I was just like, going to, I was going to mention that. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Danny Elfman, uh, who was, to, to me, Oingo Boingo, my favorite band of all time, yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny Elfman and uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who scored The Burbs, my favorite movie of all time, both guys have stated that the score from Psycho is their absolute like inspiration for what they do, and, and it makes perfect sense to me because you can hear a lot of that. Yeah, definitely. The 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 the, the kind of that a uh, repeating motif of when she's traveling at the beginning, and you get this kind of and then when you think about how Danny Elfman scores things, it's not Danny Elfman does a more kind of uh, cartoon esque version of that score pretty much all the time. And oh, it yeah. works. It really, really, really works. The score sells the movie, obviously, of the iconic string stabs as uh, as Janet Lee's being killed, which becomes 
like you say, it's what people remember this movie for more than anything. They remember the fact that one, Norman dressed like a woman, he was actually his mother, and uh, his mother was dead, and two, that Janet Lee dies in the shower. And then a lot of the other details are maybe lost unless you watch the movie. People that haven't seen the movie probably already know them going in, but uh, it just works as a complete package. I think, uh, yeah, it's abs- I, I, I absolutely love this movie. Um, this was the first time I'd seen it in a while, and it's funny you were talking about how beautiful it looks on Blu-ray. It's the best black and white. I, there's movies that have been... That artist, that movie that came out not that long ago, The Artist, which oh, yeah. was black and white and silent, uh, I saw that on Blu-ray, and I thought it looked really pretty. Uh, Psycho looks better <laughs> oh well looks... see i haven't watched it on blu-ray so oh, i need to dude. check out the blu-ray the blu-ray is ridiculous it's one of the best kind of printed blu-rays i've ever seen obviously it's because they're not having to deal with color correction or anything like that they're just having to deal with black and white but um it's stunning it's like really it's beautiful it's so so beautiful um, and it just makes me appreciate the movie more because a movie like that you want you want it to be what well, it's like What's, what is it now, 55 years old? Uh, yeah, you want a movie that's 55 years old that's iconic as this to look as good as it's going to look. The Blu-ray is as good as the movie's ever going to look. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. But uh, is there anything else you want to mention about Psycho um, before we, we drop some grades? No, I was just I was going to say I thought uh, Hitchcock was pretty ballsy in the fact that, you know, every time uh, Arbogast would kind of get on the trail of Norman, that Norman would uh, rush off to return video cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait that's american psycho my bad shit <laughs> oh my god oh yeah oh. I, I, you, you wonder you wonder there are parallels like, there are fucking parallels I, yeah. I, you you brought that up and now it really makes me think like norman's reactions are are patrick bateman's reactions yeah pretty much I, I, and it makes you it makes you wonder how much uh brett easton ellis was thinking about Psycho when writing American Psycho because it is basically it's the it's the the antithesis of eighties consumerism with Psycho, uh, really when you when you think about it um, and it's yeah there you go the more you know uh, right so <laughs> as you remember Johnny on this one it's simple grades uh, Netflix one hated it two didn't like it three liked it four really liked it five loved it um, I I will be surprised. If Let's do a at... fucking five, really. Yeah, like I think you can't, I can't go less than a five. <laughs> yeah, it's five with a bullet for me. I think this. Uh, I think this movie speaks for its, itself. If you've not seen Psycho and you're listening to this show, what's wrong with you? Uh, well, let me ask you a question, question, Duncan, real yeah. fast. I, uh-huh. I, I, at my job, you know, I'm I'm not a celebrity. I work at a shitty day to day job. Um, I meet a lot of college kids who are like in their late teens, early twenties, and a lot of them I talk about movies and stuff. And they have a problem with black and white and movies like uh-huh. this. Like, how would you pitch this movie to somebody who's not as open to something? Because they got to see something like this. I mean, this movie's amazing. Yeah. Um, I I would say if I was pitching this movie to someone, I would say that this movie is the template for. For horror movies as we know them now, I think you can tr- you can tr- track back every horror movie um, that you watch now to an extent, um, and you know they all kind of. If you had a Ground Zero, Psycho's Ground Zero, um, I would say to them that whilst it's not the horror movie you're expecting, because people today see things like Hostel or decent oh, yeah. to violence, <laughs> people people have seen. Uh, 
Jason Voorhees running around with a machete killing people so it's maybe you know as these sort of things I would say that the, the thing that stands out most about this movie is that it's probably one of the best scripted shot and acted horror movies of all time where the director deliberately and ballsily shoots it in black and white because that sells the movie that, that's what sells the movie if this had been done in colour I don't think it'd have half the impact that it does the, there's something really creepy about seeing blood go down a drain hole when it's in black and white. Seeing blood in black and white is actually pretty creepy because it doesn't look right. You know, it doesn't look. It, it doesn't look right. The the severity, the, the beauty of this movie is all the really harsh, violent things that happen in this movie. You make them harsh and violent by the fact that you fill in the blanks with them. And plus um, the the shadow play, the the way he uses oh. shadows with the taxidermy and everything in this movie. Oh is, yeah, it's, it's so just, stunning. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It is like it is an icon of cinema, uh, and I think that's that's how you sell it to someone that that maybe doesn't have the patience for black and white or whatever. And it, yeah, it's, it's difficult to get someone enthused about a movie if you're saying, "Oh yeah, it's one of the best horror movies ever made," and then people <laughs> think, "Oh yeah, from 1960s." Oh, I'm sure it is, Johnny. I but um, I think it really is. I think you can't under you can't understate and can't underplay the the one the significance of the movie, but just the movie in general. I mean, there's a lot of movies that that shape cinema, that date horribly, that, you know, you can start picking holes in and things when you go back and look at them. Psycho's not a movie that you can do that with. No, it's you can, you much, cannot you cannot poke holes in this movie. It's 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 all it's almost impenetrable. Um and I think that's as a testament to Hitchcock. Hitchcock was just when he made this movie, he was he was as as punk rock as any director could get because they weren't financing these movies on the same level. Um, he kind of lost a lot of the bite that he had as a director. This is his fuck you uh, to everyone. And it, it, it shows. There's there's something that he never really tops the viciousness of this movie um, in anything that he does. There are elements in other movies which are vicious, but he never really tops that kind of... He goes for the jugular in this movie. And um, it's something that I think... I, you just have to see it to believe it. I mean, you compare this to the, the wider Hitchcock canon, this is probably... It, it has the frenzies one where he goes like uh, really quite harsh as well, and there are other ones which are mean-spirited and whatnot, but Psycho's the one where he just... He clobbers you with the one thing you would never suspect and flips cinema on its head. Um, that's a fucking amazing movie. Oh, by God. But... We now have to turn our attention to a movie which I'm going to say, Johnny, I'm going to be controversial right now, before we even cut for a break and trailers <laughs> are played. If you hold a gun to my head, though, and tell me which movie I have watched more, or which movie I can shove and watch any time, I always pick Dress to Kill Over Psycho, uh, which may blow people's minds out there. Um, um, Psycho does not have Nancy Allen's titties. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> Just until Nancy <laughs> Allen, oh my god. Oh yeah. Uh, so we're going to take a short break just now. Uh, you're going to hear some promos for shows I love. You're going to hear the trailer for our second movie review, which came 20 years after Psycho. Uh, it's done by the, the man they know as Brian De Palma, and it's his movie, Dressed to Kill. And we're going to be right back after this. 72 movies that shocked a nation and made an infamous list, the video nasties. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish and you can join me and my co-host Andy Blockley Hello, hello. As we chat about 
the 72 films, reviewing them all from the video nasty list live on our podcast. Tell them about it, Andy. Okay, 1982, 20,000 films were seized in London alone because they were too nasty to be watched. Come and find out why. That's right. The show's called Doing the Nasty Podcast. You can find it exclusively on the Horrorphilia Network of Podcasts. Come and check us out. And we interrupt this podcast under the stairs to bring you another Bazzi's Basement. That's right, it's time to address the questions and answer the advice that you guys have put forward on the Facebook page this time. We decided to go a bit more interactive and uh, jump to the Facebook page and um, just see what you guys come up with. And you have not disappointed. Uh, It should be said that you have uh, delivered exactly what I was hoping for. Absolute fucking mentality. Um, so, uh, we're also going to announce the winner of the very special competition to win a European UK region wreck to Blu-ray. In order to do that, though, I need to introduce my guest at this time. He is the man who... Uh, well, he's the man who's going to answer your questions. Once again, I've just got to put this out here. I don't really think he's he's necessarily giving the best advice in the world, but uh, you guys seem to be lapping it up. So he is, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the Baz. Hola, sexy, non-threatening, non-sexually violent bitches. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. We really should have put a bit more thought into the response, because we said, yes, I want it was the answer to the question. Yeah, and then we also po- said we'd post a picture of my wife. Yeah, job number one would have been not having your wife in the picture, Duncan, when I had a response like that, do you know what I mean? You said put your, you were the one I said we'd put on Facebook, and you said you could do it underneath the photo of your wife. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I can't help it that your brain is constantly switched to the seedy underbelly of society. I, can't, I, d- I did also like the fact that your wife was the only one that wanted it in a threatening and sexually violent way. That's right, and she got it twice. She's a, she's um, a manky, manky woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I married her. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, the competition went up for a week. Uh, the response, actually a lot better than I was expecting. I think we got about eight or nine people. Um, which, let's be honest, when you have a podcast that has like a listener download base of as many as this show does 8 or 9 is quite small but in terms of Facebook competitions on podcasts this is actually quite high a response uh, <laughs> you guys go quite shy when you're asked to do something out there um, even when it's for free uh, can't that shit away don't you can't, can't. Give away, my friend. I've already got a copy I don't want to um, so uh, Baz if you would like to announce the winner of the competition Indeed, so the, this month's winner of the UK Region 2 release of the new Wreck film, Wreck Apocalypse, is... That's my very shite drum roll. It is, in fact, the ball-busting, bass-playing behemoth that is Mr. Michael Winter. Yay! <laughs> Congratulations, Michael. I'm looking at his Facebook page here and he's playing a bass. I don't actually know Michael at all, um, <laughs> despite that over-friendly introduction there. But Michael, you have won Wreck Apocalypse, my friend. 
Yes, Michael, if you drop me a line on the Facebooks when you hear this, um, if you are one of these casual listeners that listens to the show, like maybe once a month and then you know, binges on them, uh, if I haven't heard from you, within a couple of days of the show going up, I will drop you a line and uh, we will get your address and make sure that gets posted all the way up to wherever you are um, in the UK. So yeah, um, there will be another competition very, very soon. I'm kind of hoping that Arrow will donate another Blu-ray for the the competition pile and of course let's not forget that those uh, very special podcasts under the stairs posters when they're completed as soon as they're ready we'll be running a competition to win one so and they are limited um, as in when they're gone they're gone Um, so I think it's now time to uh, to get in our comfy chairs um, not touch yourself inappropriately and uh, let's do another (laughs) <laughs> Bazzy's basement. So Baz, we had a... Uh, we need a theme tune, Duncan. We do, at the you moment... Need, you need to get the key tar out, mate, and knock me up something, my friend. I need an intro to this bit now. At the moment, I've got some sort of swinging 60s background playing underneath <laughs> what we're saying just now. I, I, I quite dig it, but we do need something like a... Bazzy's basement, yeah! Or something. You know, like, I, I don't know, something... something Let like, him reach out and touch you. No, Baz, that's inappropriate. <laughs> Sexual harassment, by Sexual like harassment. <laughs> I don't want to get sent on the HR course again as to why we're not allowed to touch our listeners. There. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's not do this, right? So, uh, yeah, so um, that I put up on the Facebook page today, actually. You know, has anyone got any questions or want some advice from the Baz and Bazzy's basement? Ask them to speak now or forever hold their peace. The response was quite staggering, so we're going to fire through all of these, but we're going to do quite a lot of them quite quick. Um, and then we're going to focus in on what I consider was the best question out of the lot. So let's start it off with John Rhodes from Grave Shift Radio. John asks, would Baz stay in a haunted location for the show? Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. This actually got a little bit out of control and there's a few folks suggesting this. I am, yeah, I'm going to, I have put myself on the line for you people. <laughs> on many occasions for this show and I have sacrificed my dignity, my humour and my clean underwear for all of you but there is I can, no, that will never happen I'll never do it for that the thought of it creeps me out even just thinking, talking about it I'll, I'll do most things for a laugh I'll humiliate myself beyond all belief to get a laugh I am that guy but I will never do anything like that no, I've watched Grave Encounters you've ruined it for me that happened to me do you know what I mean? That's what would happen to me. So what you're basically saying, Baz, is you would do anything for love, but you wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't ask my theme tune, mate. <laughs> uh, right, so... Um, yeah, uh, Jerry Esposito at that point, our, our good friend Jerry, um, said that we'd reached a new level of sadism towards you. Um, yeah, which, Jerry is right. Which didn't help when John's follow-up question was, can we get... Duncan and the Baz to use a Ouija board no again for the exact same reasons <laughs> I've just given you no um, that the Ouija board and the the marked ones paranormal activity marked ones bursting into flames would be chicken's play to what happened to me if I try or child's play even is the word I'm looking for uh, if I try to do it it would go off like a nuclear explosion or something <laughs> if I was trying to do it so no not doing a Ouija board either so, so John John felt that he, he needed to, to, to come back and try and redeem himself. So he said, if he paid all the expenses, would Baz and Duncan stay in the UK's most haunted hotel or inn? And he found it on Wikipedia, it's called the Ancient Ram Inn. Would we stay there, Baz, if he paid for it? 
No, because I'm frightened what you would try and ram in, McLeish. <laughs> I mean, do you follow your honey flavoured Jim Beam? Try to ram all sorts in. Oh, if I see boys, I'd rather you ram something in the high stay in one of these places. So <laughs> they get haunted by a ghost. Basically, uh, I, d- I don't think I don't think John knows that basically when we did our our Baz v Halloween, um, all it took was two paranormal activity films for you to think that your house was actually haunted. So uh, yeah, so yeah, we, I, we'll I save you some money, John. Oh God, yeah, right. So that's 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 a that's a no go either. Uh, John does redeem himself um, at the end of another question. However, our good friend Jamie Wilson, the Jamza. Uh, asks, does Baz know of anywhere we can purchase a new iPhone for cheap, as his is bit of dust and he can do no more podcasts at the moment, which if you know Jamie that must be like our idea of hell, that would be like us not having our iPods, Baz. Yeah, uh, yeah it must be absolutely crippling for Jamie actually. Um, on the rather mundane question of anywhere you can purchase an iPhone, not particularly, but Jamie, there are a plethora of other means of accessing sexy goodness that are our podcasts and indeed the lesser podcasts that are available um, <laughs> you know it doesn't need to be a phone you, uh, mp3 player you can download them out of that via laptop do you know what I mean just whatever you do at work Jamie just kick back put your feet up get the old internet fired up on your computer away we go my friend yeah. alternatively you do live in Belfast now so there's probably some paramilitary street gang selling all sorts that you can get off of <laughs> you do run uh, obviously the, the risk of being kneecapped or whatever oh, do you know what I mean um, yeah don't get the black taxis whatever you do <laughs> next uh, right uh, <laughs> Sean McFall asks what are Bazzy's guides to a good night out <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't actually seen this one. A good night out, oh god, a good night out for me normally constitutes like three pints and a curry on the way home these days, to be honest. You'd asked me this 15 years ago, Sean, my answer would have been very different, my friend. Yep, there'd have been transsexuals and dwarfs and all sorts involved in it, but um, no, just uh, maybe a low alcohol lager, some poetry, home early, early to bed, up the next morning for church, my friend. Oh my god, those that know you, Baz, know that that's so far removed. The, the, the many times, the many times I've heard, I was kind of rough on the Sunday, and that wasn't after a low alcoholic beer. Um, anyway, right. Yeah, so, if any pictures from my stag do end up on this Facebook page, McLeish will be words been up for you, sir. <laughs> yeah, there was. Uh, yeah, let's not go there. Uh, okay, uh, so John Rhodes comes back and says, Okay, in all seriousness, Baz. Yes. What thing or things specifically scared the Baz and why? Uh, I think I've been asked something similar uh, before. I think maybe in my anniversary show. That's right, yes. Handing questions in. Um, and I gave a rather kind of garbled answer. I think at that point I had three or four whiskeys by the time we got to that <laughs> point in the show. Um, my, my chief, the thing that really freaks me out um, is any anything like kind of plane wrecks or shipwrecks or old ruined buildings can up in the middle of the woods and stuff like that. Anything kind of vaguely wreck-like or spooky and, and kind of haunted looking. Um, in Danoon, there's a number of, uh, where I come from, the wee, the wee town that I come from, there's a number of kind of old watchtowers and stuff. I'm assuming they must be kind of from the, the Middle Ages or stuff, but they're way up at the back of all the kind of walking trails 
you find these things up there, you do a, a nice pleasant walk and suddenly there's this pagan tower thing in front of you. <laughs> um, and things like that have always creeped me out since I've been wee. Yeah. Um, and any form of wreck, I, I don't really know where that came from. Um, I remember being on holiday in... It was either Cyprus or Yugoslavia, I can't remember, with my parents when I, I was young. Um, and walking down by the kind of harbour, I think it was in Cyprus, I think it may have been in Paphos in Cyprus. And uh, we walked away out in a big kind of jetty that led out into the water and I happened to glance down and there was like a little fishing boat that had sunk, obviously uh-huh. just on its mooring kind of thing. It had been down there for years and I remember being absolutely terrified seeing this thing under the water. I just, I find it really unnatural because a boat should be on top of the water. Yeah. To see it down there, effectively lying on the ground if you like at the bottom of the water, I find really strange. There's a, a very famous plane wreck near where I lived as well, up in the Suckath Moor. Uh, a Boeing Super Fortress bomber that crashed just after the war. And I have a, a kind of um, like a morbid curiosity about these things. I would love to go and see them, but I know if I get there, I would be totally shitting myself. Yeah. Um, and the example I gave as well, my wife, before we met, she'd gone travelling in Australia, and she has a picture, or a couple of pictures of her and a friend. It's in the west coast, I think, or the east coast, maybe the east coast of Australia. Uh, it's a sunken shipwreck thing that gets uh, revealed when the tide goes out every day, mm-hmm. and they'd waded out to this thing and pictured it. And it's a huge ship that's all rusted to hell, and it, even looking at the picture freaks me out. So yeah, that kind of stuff scares <laughs> me. Okay, okay. So, um, the next question we have uh, comes from uh, Dave Burke. Yep. Um, who actually asked the main question, which we're about to come to as well. So, but I couldn't resist getting into this question very, very quickly. So, <coughs> Dave Burke asks, "What does Baz do to celebrate St Patrick's Day? He's wearing green clover leaves on his man nipples for the parade. What about yourself, Baz? What do you do?" I'm not a big nipple pasty man myself, Dunk. <laughs> um, now, before, now see, if Dave actually knew me to any extent, he probably wouldn't have asked this question of me. Uh-oh. Um, obviously, I well, I don't come from Glasgow. I've used my kind of adopted home. Uh-huh. Uh, Glasgow is a relatively divided city, shall we say, <laughs> um, yes. in terms of the blue and the green, as we call it over there. And I am of the bluer persuasion. <laughs> so the celebration of St. Patrick's Day and all things Irish would not normally be something that somebody would ask me. However, I actually have celebrated on a number of occasions. Once, in fact, in Boston. I was out in Boston eh, for St. Patrick's Day. I was out there to see the Dropkick Murphys doing their hometown shows at St. Patrick's Day weekend. And I was at the parade and everything um, at that. And But this year, uh, I shall be celebrating St. Patrick's Day in the famous Barrowlands Ballroom in Glasgow, watching the mighty Stiff Little Fingers oh. do their annual uh, St. Patrick's Night celebrations in Glasgow every year. Uh, Belfast Stiff Little Fingers come over and play in Glasgow on St. Patrick's Day at the Barras. Um, this very famous thing in Glasgow. Uh, this will be, I think, my third time at it. But all the old punks come out in force and I will be there with a big fat friend John Paul who despite his name is even bluer than I am um, he's <laughs> the most unfortunately named Ranger supporter in the history of football um, but John Paul and I will both be there uh, cheering on the SLF and trying to avoid getting stabbed <laughs> right so Dave Dave asked the main question the first question yes. I fucking loved this I need to ask you I know this section's run a wee bit long but I, I can't help it it yep. says if Baz was into the in quotation marks 
furry scene, what animal would he dress up as? Right, here we go. Strap yourselves in. Because this is going to be a roller coaster. Right, first off, Dave, I believe the correct term is plushy scene. Right, but anyway, we'll go with funny, whatever, right? But as in the no refer to it as plushy. Uh, now, the first thing that got me right away here was this is meant to be uh agony ant section, if you like. I'm meant to be helping you. It's not ask Baz embarrassing questions section. Oh, no, 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 no. No, Baz's basement is to ask advice or ask questions of the Baz. Is it? Right, yeah. Okay, well, I, know, I, know what, I know what you mean. This one's yeah. a bit more personal, but. Well, I, I feel I feel that if you embrace and tell the people what furry animal you would dress up as, maybe it will um, inspire other people to do the same. Well, this is the kind of my thinking because I thought, well, Dave, he's making it look as if he's asking me. Is there maybe a, a deeper depth to this question, Dave? Are you maybe asking for yourself, my friend? <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. If there's if there's one man on this planet that loves his kink, it's the Baz. Do you know what I mean? So really, whatever floats your creepy, furry wee boat, my friend. If it was me, it's not a field I've dabbled in. I've dabbled in a lot, but never this. And I had a good long hard think of this, and I think if I was going to that, I would be a bear. <laughs> and the reason being... And here, I'm going to relate, very quickly relate it back to, in Glasgow, relate it back to football in Glasgow, Rangers supporters are referred to as bears, but surprisingly that's not why I would want to be a bear. I would want to be a bear because of one of my man crushes, the legend that is Bob Mould of Husker Do. <laughs> Bob is a big gay fella, always has been, came out in the early 90s when he was with Sugar, um, but I recently read Bob's autobiography, um, which name has completely escaped me. Does it leave a little light? But anyway, whatever, right? I read his autobiography. And while I knew uh, Bob was a lovely big gay fella, I didn't realise he was, in fact, heavily involved in the bear scene. <laughs> which is a sub, which is a, a gay subculture, which is for the gay men that aren't into the, the sort of effeminate uh, side of the, the homosexual world, if you like, kind of thing. So they're quite kind of butch men. And they wear a lot of like flannel and checks, and they tend to have beards and quite often shaved heads. Um, and they and they're, they're referred to as bears. And weirdly, would you I, actually? I was about to say, would you actually need to purchase a costume first? This is the thing, actually. When I discovered this, and I started looking back at more recent photographs of Bob Mould, and him and I, from a distance, are practically identical. So I already dress and appear a bit bear-like in the gay parlance. Um, but Bob holds uh, one of the coveted positions on my. Um, you know how like some couples have lists of famous people they're allowed to do without yes. their partner getting annoyed with. Well, I have this kind of list of gay men that I would allow to do me without me getting <laughs> annoyed with. But they're not even all gay men. In fact, the first one is Brian Lowry, the former gorgeous Rangers player. But Bob <laughs> holds a very coveted second place on there. Um, I would probably let Bob do me. Um, the third one actually recently made that list is uh, your man Mads Mickelson from uh, Hannibal. Yes. Because um, we were discussing this the other day. And it's not that I really find uh, Mads particularly sexually attractive, but I just think with that voice of his, he could probably talk me into it and I would be helpless. <laughs> so he would probably get to have his way with me. So yeah, so yeah, probably the bear in a homage to my good gay friend Bob Mould and his bear lifestyle 
I would be a bear. But like I say, Dave, I suspect there's a lot more to this question. I think you're looking for yourself, mate. You need to reach out and find your own furry animal, Dave. That's my advice to you, my friend. Reach out and find your own plushie. <laughs> well, we thank go. you. Thank you very much, Baz, for that extremely graphic um, <laughs> outing of myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, remember, you can ask questions or advice off the Baz by uh, sending us an email to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com in the heading put Baz's Basement. Congratulations again to Michael Winter for winning the Wreck for Blurry. Um, it will be on its way. As soon as you get in touch with me and give me your address for... I can assure you right now, Baz will not be told your address. <coughs> <laughs> that's, that's one thing that definitely won't fucking happen. Anyway, uh, Baz, would you like to say goodbye to the listeners? Goodbye, listeners. I shall speak to you all soon. <laughs> right. Uh, we're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, I'm going to be rejoined by the man, Johnny Krug. And we're going to look at Brian De Palma's 1980 fucking awesome movie, Dressed to Kill. And we're going to be doing that right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. Do you find me attractive? Of course. Would you want to sleep with me? Yes. Then why don't you? Because I love my wife, and it isn't worth jeopardizing my marriage. I shouldn't have been so rude. Thank you for picking up. Mm. Master of the Macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. <coughs> dressed to Kill. Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, Dressed to Kill. Murder. Made to order. And welcome back. So you've just heard the trailer for our second and final movie review of the show. This one is from 1980. It's called Dress to Kill and was directed by Brian De Palma and written by Brian De Palma. The movie stars Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, Keith Gordon, Dennis Franz, David Marguelas, Ken Baker, lots of other folk. 
Um, the synopsis is a mysterious blonde woman kills one of a psychiatrist's patients, then goes after the high-class call girl who witnessed the murder. So, um, I'll kick us off this time. Um, like I said, just before the, the, the break there, I dropped a bombshell, which obviously stunned everyone, except Johnny, because he, he, <laughs> he was thinking about the titties. Um, but yeah, this... Uh, this movie has a, a rewatchability factor for me, which is ridiculous. I've seen this movie more times than Psycho, um, and we'll obviously touch on this during a review here uh, about the the degrees of potential plagiarism uh, used in this movie. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so basically, what we have here is we have um, a blonde woman <laughs> who is. Um, can we see unsatisfied with her marital relationship? Does that does that kind of? I think that uh, kind of. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, um, and we, we we obviously we get that uh, we get that phenomenal opening of her basically playing with herself in a shower. Dirty, <laughs> dirty bitch that she is. Um, as her husband shaves, um, and she's having a dream. We know that she's having a dream because one, there is a very dreamlike quality about the scene. Uh, but she's grabbed by an assailant uh, who. I believe then rapes her in the shower, um, or it's implied that that happens before we we cut out. We find that obviously it's been a dream. Uh, she has she's in a kind of loveless marriage. Uh, she has a son who is like some sort of tech computer savvy binary code genius uh, who sits up all night working on gadgets, uh, which is a quirky detail that we'll once again we'll come back to. Um, so basically, she is seeing a psychiatrist played by Michael Caine. Um, she flirts with the psychiatrist. When she flirts with the psychiatrist, she then leaves. She goes to a, a museum stroke art gallery where... And we'll come back to this scene because this scene blows my mind every time. She uh, is sitting beside a man who she finds attractive and then they play a game of cat and mouse chasing each other through the museum before she eventually finds him outside in a taxi. He basically grabs her, pulls her into the taxi. Uh, <laughs> she, yeah, She gets finger-popped here a little yeah, bit. She, yeah, yeah. In the back of the, t- the cab, the taxi driver's loving it. Um, they go back to his uh, apartment where they have sex. Um, and she's kind of feeling on cloud nine. She's got a bit of guilt, but she's kind of feeling on cloud nine. For some reason, she decides to go messing around his stuff. Um, and she opens a drawer and finds a letter to find out that the guy's got an STD, which is, from her point of view, is her worst nightmare. Um, so she she's like, I'm getting the fuck out here. I need to go to the doctors, get my get a shot of antibiotics. Um, fucking bastard, right? So, so she goes, she, and to be honest with you, I, what did she expect? This guy's that, obviously... That's the true horror of the movie. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a statement here right now. You you don't pick up people at, you know, art galleries. There's a certain type of person that, you know, that will pick up a woman in an art gallery and those are ones with STDs, Johnny. Um, so, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, if, if, if we were doing a, a Kruger Nation episode and we were doing one of your, your what you learned from this movie, that's your that's your lesson learned. Never pick up someone in a museum. <laughs> um, so, that's uh, a good lesson. That is a good, that's life lessons. Uh, so she, um, she is on her way out the building. She goes into the elevator and, at one point in the elevator, um, a rather 
<laughs> well, she's the elevator doors open, and uh, we get this glimpse of this uh, blonde-haired woman who is brandishing an open blade razor, who then cuts cuts her up. Um, the elevator comes down, and then we get Nancy Allen's character. She is stunning in this movie, by the oh way. Oh my god! Oh my god! Like I cannot like. You can look at Nancy Allen in any movie that she's done aside from this, and she's she's pretty, but look at her in this movie. Oh my god, dude! Like she is phenomenal. Like, yeah, I think yeah, I think there's a reason. I th- was was she married to De Palma when this movie was made? I'm sure I've she was. That. Yes. Yeah, so I can totally see why he's like... I love that. I love that he made his wife a hooker. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's, he's like Argento levels of creepiness. You know, like that. Argento's like that with, with, with Azure. Right, you're going to be raped in this movie. Um, is that okay? Right, now get your top off for dad. Um, so, you, you know, as it's creepy as fuck. But in this movie, he makes his wife a prostitute. A, a rather smoking prostitute. And if I had a wife like that, and I was a filmmaker, I'd probably want to do the same. Um, At least so, she was a high-class hooker. She wasn't, she, like, skanky. Yeah, because she knew how to work stock markets, and you know she she wasn't cheap. She wasn't cheap. Five hundred pound? That's not cheap, Johnny. Oh. Um, I, I don't know how they go in the states, but they're, they're cheaper over here. So I've been told. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yeah, basically what we get out of this one is that when the elevator doors open, she's just finished hooking with a client. I believe that's the technical term. Um, and she finds the body. Uh, oh my God, his reaction, like, is priceless. It's priceless. He ditches her so fucking fast. Well, in his mind, he's like that. I, one, there's a horrific crime scene in here. But two, there's going to be police here. And I've got to explain why I'm with her. And I'm a respected businessman in the stock market. And she's she's a prostitute. You know what I mean? <laughs> Career ruined, scandal ruined. I, I'm getting out of here, and he, he fucks off. He doesn't even make sure she's okay. He's just like down the stairs now. He's like, dude, the killer could still be there. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's like, he just ditches the shit out of her. He, the thing about it is, the killer is still there, and uh, we'll get this fucking amazing sequence of the the door slowly closing, and uh, Nancy Allen's got her hand coming in the door, and he, you you get this feeling that her hand's gonna get slashed, um, but she looks up and notices in the mirror of the reflection, so she gets a brief look at blonde-haired woman who's wearing sunglasses and almost got kind of there's almost a kind of level of the jalo in this um and oh, that it's totally all, the glasses and everything and the, and the, and the like the overcoat coat. she's wearing yeah 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 it's very very open, open blade razor um and he drops it she picks it out um the elevator moves on police obviously start investigating things may think at first that nancy allen's involved Obviously not so much. Um, then we think Dennis Franz is a dick to her. He's so he's, rude to her. He is an abs- He's a dick to everyone. He's. A, I love the fact that he starts. He gets Michael Caine because Michael Caine's the psychiatrist of of uh, Angie Dickinson's character, Dickinson. Sorry, who's uh, who's died, and they bring him in and he starts asking questions about the. the kind of the client uh, that he's had you know uh, why was she coming to see you and uh, did she hurt on you and did you sleep all these sort of things I love the fact that Michael Caine goes are you married and he's like yeah you're married he's like that yeah. alright so you're, you're married and when was the last time you had intercourse and he's like <laughs> he's like what the fuck does that mean why are you asking me questions like that he goes well that's how I feel when you ask me these questions and Kane's like a boss in this movie I love Michael oh, Caine oh totally totally he's, he's, uh, he's most fun I know a lot of people now think of him as from the Batman movies and the suave, sophisticated Englishman, but he's he's having a fucking riot with this role. I uh, think a lot of people dismiss his like late seventies, eighties, and his uh, like mid to early eighties roles, and I think like this movie proves that he was still on fire. 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's a. I think obviously people remember, you know, things like Zulu and Jaws uh, Four. Yeah, Jaws Four. <laughs> you know, the people remember the, the, the kind of the earlier part of his career, and people now like recognise that obviously Christopher Nolan's got a hard on for him because he's in every Nolan movie now, pretty much, uh, and rightly so. He's a great actor, um, but I think people they do like you say they overlook these these sort of things and um so basically michael kane has this phone call left in his message from someone called bobby um and bobby we find out is the killer um and i mean there's hints in here straight away i'm not i've already spoiled this movie there's hints (laughs) in here that michael kane is the killer because michael kane's character is called robert elliott and the killer's name is bobby which is short for robert I mean, come on. <laughs> We're not having a stretch far here. He's hiding in plain sight. It pretty much is. So he's a, his um, his street razor has been the one that has been used in the crime. Bobby has set them up. And uh, he's done this because uh, Angie Dickinson's character, Kate, has flirted with Michael Caine. She came on him, uh, which was unacceptable. So then we, it becomes basically a kind of... On some levels, it descends into a kind of... Uh, it's not much a jalo after this point. It becomes more of a just like a, your kind of basic thriller who did it. And we go through a lot of different... There are slight jalo tropes as well, but we kind of move through this. Nancy Allen is kind of blackmailed on some level by the police officer who basically tells her, um, listen, we know that the, the patient is a patient of Michael Caine. Um, I can't get that book. However, you could steal it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, you know, if you don't steal it, I'm going to arrest you for, for, for murder. And I'm like... That's like a morally corrupt thing to do, you know. It's like really. Quite That's bad. definitely like New York '80s police yeah, department. Yeah, this is totally. He's like playing pure sleaze here, but he, he's done it with like just. And there's there's a reason that Dennis France has been played. He's played so many police officers. It's because like people just and so many New York police officers because there must just be a quality about them where people see him go. Yeah, you are the epitome of all that is New York's police department. Of that era, especially. So, um, she teams up with the son of Kate, who has all these weird and wonderful tech devices. I mean, he's he, he used like a sim device earlier on to eavesdrop on the the conversation between the police officer and the the psychiatrist. He, she seemed like a good mom too with him. I mean, it, she did. I mean, like she, that was one thing. Yeah, I mean, like it, like that was the thing. Like even though she had these like es- you know escapades or whatever and 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 she you know had VD, <laughs> like it seemed like her and her son had a pretty solid relationship. So I yeah. like the fact that they introduced him into this movie because otherwise it would have made no sense. Yeah, but that's like, that's the, the the point of the palm was good writing is that we only have one scene with her sitting with her son, and we get from that one scene that she's a caring mother. Um, she does look out for him. She she knows that she's not the best mother, but she's still looking out for her son. Um, and even though we know that her character is miserable, she doesn't show that in front of her son. I think that's just really good writing, really good acting. It's a great script. And um, so basically, he teams up with with uh, Nancy Allen's character, setting up various devices like a, a camera, uh, which is going to. That's earlier on in the movie, mind you. He takes snapshots until he finds the woman leaving the the psychiatrist's office, which is how Nancy Allen knows about it, goes to the police and the police blackmail him. Uh, we get that great scene on the train as well, where Nancy Allen's basically accosted by a group of of, uh, of hoodlums. As Jesus Christ, she almost gets gang-raped. 
She pretty much done and that that you want to talk about like just things taking a turn for the nasty pretty quick. Um, that conversation is going on all of one minute where they they go from kind of being unpleasant to to basically want to kill her and or rape her, and the 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 order of those events are you know are optional. You know, <laughs> it gets really scary fast. And so she gets on the train to escape them, but they also get on the train. So we have this sequence where they're chasing her up this train. We're like, oh, fuck. You know, she's going to get caught. Something bad's going to happen. And just as we think she's going to escape through the next carriage, she's then almost murdered by blonde chick with the glasses and the the thing. But that's when the the, the kid arrives to save her with his own homemade version of Mace. Because why not? Uh, this whole scene during that whole scene like the one thing that bothers me every time I watch this movie is when she gets on the goddamn subway there's a massive like seven foot tall black like is he a cop a security guard yeah 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 He's why like, doesn't she just secu- why doesn't she stick with him yeah that's what I'd be doing I'd be thinking to myself I kind of feel uncomfortable kind of feel like I'm in danger this guy is clearly a man of authority <laughs> I'm just going to stand with him for my you know 20 minute train ride or whatever. Uh, yeah, she I mean, she's got, she's got two instances of death coming her way. <laughs> so, so basically, Dennis Franz has put this, this, this ultimatum down on Nancy Allen's character. You have to get me the book. So she decides to do what someone of her profession would use as like a, a, a possible weapon. So she decides to seduce Michael Caine. So, and oh my God, the levels are sexy in this scene. Um, she basically... Dude, that, 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 that black uh, lingerie. Oh my God. My God. <laughs> so she's in the room and she's, she's trying to seduce him basically by saying that, you know, she's escaped this, this almost death and made her think she has these dreams. And she basically spills out this like clearly erotic story um because she's uh, as she's doing it she's she's basically she's walking around them and all the rest and she says she wants to sleep with michael kane michael kane reluctantly agrees his arms twisted up if if you're gonna force me to sleep with you then all right then so because by this point that that's that right there is a red flag if force really force yeah yeah, you know if you're gonna have to force me because she's stripped off by now she's she's in the sexy lingerie so she goes away to quote unquote powder her nose uh, and she comes back and says that if i come back when i come back here i want to see you naked so we can get to it and if you don't then we can put the clothes back on and get back to whatever this is this psychiatrist appointment that I booked with you, Mr. <laughs> Professional Michael Caine, man. Um, meanwhile, the kid's outside. He's taking photos. Uh, well, no, he's not taking photos. He's observing. Um, <laughs> and, and then he gets attacked by a woman in a blonde wig. So we, well, our blonde-headed woman grabs him. So we're like, oh, the killer's outside. Right, that's kind of not how I thought this was going. But the killer's outside. So Nancy Allen comes back in after finding the book. She comes back in, she comes into the room, everything's in dark, uh, and then she gets attacked by our killer. But just as she's getting attacked by the killer, she's shot in the shoulder. We find out the person outside that grabbed the kid is a police officer who's been put undercover to basically stalk Nancy Allen because... And it's a crack shot, too. I mean, they, like, that's a fast shot, dude. A really fast shot. She, like, fucking, she puts him down and we obviously see the wig comes off and it's Michael Caine. It's Michael Caine's character. Now, <laughs> earlier on in the movie, it's a scene that I slightly skipped over. Michael Caine goes to see another psychiatrist and basically he has referred a patient to this psychiatrist and this, this patient is the one that he believes is Bobby person. And we find out that this psychiatrist later on explains the story a bit further. And um, basically what has happened 
is Michael Caine is a woman that was born in a man's body. And very much like the aforementioned cycle, those two aspects have been fighting in his brain constantly for control. Um, and whenever Michael Caine became sexually aroused by a woman, the female side of his brain would take over. Um, and they were going to get the op to basically make him a woman, but Michael Caine his male side, the Robert side, had kind of stopped that happening and repressed it, which is, had angered the, the female side of his brain even more um, and caused him to lash out and kill uh, when uh, Angie Dickinson's character, Kate, had flirted with him. That was the, the final straw that broke the camel's back. Um, so basically, uh, this is all explained out, so, you know, all that. And then we get one of my favourite scenes in cinema history. So we have Nancy Allen and the kid out for like a posh lunch or something and then they explain she's explaining to him what the sex change involves and the wee woman in the background the old woman in the background almost faints she's absolutely appalled she's sitting eating her meal and uh, she's like yeah and the man becomes a woman so then they take the penis and they cut it in half and you see her she starts fanning herself and she's like oh my <laughs> god and then when we cut to the next scene of her she's all white headed and her two friends are like are you alright and she's like oh my god because they're like She's over. She's overhearing all this stuff, and it's the, the whole story is explained out again between Nancy Allen to the kid, which is maybe slightly overkill. They're explaining things again, but it's done in such a way which is very much like Cycle. Um, well, they, earlier, earlier in the movie, right? That they had the the TV clip, right, of the yeah, transgendered yeah. Uh, person, and and am I? That is there, right? Like, yeah, yeah. That is, okay. The, the, the the doctor when the doctor's in his. Um, and the doctor's in his house, uh, and an earlier on scene, he's watching a program about someone going through the op. That's what it is. Okay, I knew because I was like, "Am I imagining?" Because I watched all the features on the the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. And that was part of the feature, so I didn't know if it was features only or in the movie. So, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. It's funny it, you mention that because the bit that I didn't know about until I was watching the features is when um, uh, Angie Dickinson's character is leaving the she leaves the museum and she walks down the stairs and the camera pans round to the taxi and the killer's in one of the shots. I didn't know that. He's standing beside a hot dog vendor. So the camera pans and in plain focus, front screen, you see wigged sunglasses killer as the camera pans round. And I have, I've seen this movie easily about 15, 20 times. I had never noticed that before until this viewing. And it took the one of the special features to explain that to me. And I was like, really? And I was like, so it fucking is. And like, you can clearly see the killer at that point. The killer's in the shot. Um, so that that's, a, you know, earlier on in the movie, it's basically implied that the, the idea of transsexuality is out there. Um, and then we go to the end sequence, which uh, we have a nurse who... <laughs> the nurse goes across and... Uh, she, I love this sequence actually. The nurse goes across and she's making sure everyone in the mental hospital is okay. And then Michael Caine's character comes alive and kills the nurse. And then we <laughs> jump to like this further sequence. At the very end, we jump to the sequence where basically we have Nancy Allen is uh, she's attacked while she's staying over at the kid's house. She's attacked and slashed and all the rest. But this is a dream. 
It's a dream that she she wakes up. So it's kind of like almost bookending the start and end of this movie. The start of this movie begins with a dream. The end of this movie begin, you know ends with a dream, uh, which I really like. I really it, like that kind of. The it is a cool, it's a cool bookend. I think it it works really well. My thing with that is when I was watching this, I was like, oh man, that reminds me a lot of how Carrie ended. You know, with yep. the hand coming out of the grave, and then I started thinking, oh fuck, this is another De Palma movie. Yeah, it's the same it seems director. like De Palma did a lot of that before anybody else did. Yeah, like, I think you know, Friday the Thirteenth did that too. Yeah, I think he likes playing. I think De Palma really liked playing with the idea of dreams, like you know, in his movies and doing kind of false endings or when you think you know where something's going, you get that twist and all the rest. Now that has become how iconic is that in the genre now? Every horror movie needs that final twist. If it doesn't have that final twist, people are disappointed. People, it's in everything. It. Yeah, people expect it, and it just goes to show how ahead of the curve. He was in terms of that. Um, I think I'd like, like I say, I think this movie's great. I think the score's great as well. Um, I think before we go and talk about specific scenes that I think really work between the two of us, we need to touch on uh, Nancy cycle. Allen. Well, yeah, I think I think we need to touch on the the comparisons this through cycle. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's plagiarizing Hitchcock, but I do think there's a lot of homage paid. Yeah, I think De Palma says himself that in any interview that he did at any point before this movie and after this movie, his favourite filmmaker was Hitchcock. He always said that. He was inspired by Hitchcock. Um, He said that Hitchcock had done everything in cinema. So really, to claim that you're not influenced by Hitchcock's a lie. Um, so I mean, he was fairly upfront about this, but I mean, you can you can take you can take this like several ways. One, there's an infamous shower sequence in this one. There's an infamous shower sequence in Psycho. Two, our our main who we think is our main character dies in the first thirty minutes of this movie, and he was adamant it had to happen by the thirty minute mark. Which she almost, was a big actress at the time, right? Like I thought yeah. she was pretty big. Yeah, she she she'd been big on TV and on movies. I mean, she started. In, she was not in like Rio Grande or something like that. The Rio Grande, like, wasn't she in like Police Woman or one of those shows? Or Police Woman, yeah, she was like the main part in Police Woman. And De Palma basically said to her that he wanted her as she he couldn't get any of the bigger named actresses. She was the big named actress that he wanted at the time, and he knew that he wanted her for this movie and that she would be okay dying in the first thirty minutes, which she totally was. Which once again is something that Hitchcock... There was a reason Hitchcock picked Janet Lee, And there was a reason they killed her off in the first 30 minutes. So you've got that aspect as well. You've got Except for Jan- Janet Lee uh, refused, absolutely, from what I read, uh, to flick the bean in the shower. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the thing about it, Angie, Angie uh, Dickinson is not the body that you see in the shower. Oh, said, yeah, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you, you look at her face and you look at like the way everything's at and then it moves down and you're like that. No way would her tits be as pert as that. Um, I, I was fairly sure that the, the cuffs didn't match the collar, if you know what I mean. Um, say no more, say no more. Uh, so uh, so you've got you've got that um, aspect as well. You've got the aspect of the, the, the man dressing up as a woman to kill. The, the idea of two sides, a male-female brain. Um, and yeah, I think, to me, I think to say it's plagiarism is unjust I think it's really I, I don't think it does credit to what De Palma does in this movie because De Palma I mean this movie was butchered this movie like when it when it came out it was butchered by critics and it was butchered by um, censors censors was it really like, people didn't like this 
Yeah, well, I think I think what came out was there was a lot of people that did like it. I just think a lot of people knocked it off as a, a cheap Hitchcock remake. You know, it was a cheap cycle remake. And I think that is really unfair to go after it with such vitriol because... Yeah, it's, think- it's not. I mean, that's that's very loose. I think that that's... I mean, you can read into it what you want, but I think at the end of the day, this movie is completely different. Yeah, it really is because it, de- it delves more with the psychology um, of the killer. The killer in this one is not... The killer in this one is not the boy next door. Michael Caine is not... Michael Caine had played menacing roles behind b- before this role. He wasn't universally recognised as the boy next door. The fact that he, he kind of covers... There's, there's a lot of sex in this movie in terms of the, the kind of sexuality of the movie. As oh, a lot. To, yeah, I mean, I think De Palma does that in general. Yeah, I think it, it just kind of oozes out his movies, and ooze might be the wrong word to use. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's a lot of that in there anyway. I think... I think where this movie differs from Psycho is that... I mean, there's comparisons in between the cinema. Like, De Palma has a very strong visual eye. Hitchcock had a very strong visual eye. When you look at this movie, the, the, the sequences of split screen are in there. The classic De Palma split, split screen. So, I love person? that. Like, I think I that to that. me is it's, it's very... Uh... It's a very definitive trademark, and you know you're watching a De Palma movie. Whether yeah. it's Phantom of the Paradise, whether it's Carrie, whether it's this, it's it's there. Yeah, I, I mean, I've like even checking out a movie like Sisters, which I did I for love the first that time movie. this year. For the first time this year, well, d- dude, you're coming back on to do that one then. Um, that's that's <laughs> a must. Uh, but to watch that movie and the the was one of his early ones, and he's really kind of trying out the 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 kind of split screen sort of thing. And in certain sequences, he has four different segments happening um, on the one shot on the one screen and I think that is just fucking genius and then you see it move on to like things like Phantom of the Paradise and how he, he manipulates to, to different and it is it's exactly what you see you sit down and watch a De Palma movie if you did not know it was a De Palma movie and that kicks in straight away you're like oh this is De Palma this is De Palma oh yeah for uh, sure. the, that, that museum sequence is apparently took them four days to shoot and it's fucking wonderful. I love the, the, the kind of playfulness of it. She's walking into a room. We get the camera spinning round up. We've located him. He's in the corner. And now it's working in reverse. She's walking. He's following her. We're moving in a different room. I think that is wonderful. And the score in the background. It's just it's just fucking genius. I really... And, and, and some of the comparisons... Like I read another thing, too, about how um, you know she works with... Uh, Nancy Allen works with... Um, I can't think of his name in her life. The guy from Jaws 2 and, and Christine. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But she works with him to, you know, it's, it's, it's like a kind of a mystery at that point. They're investigating and people are like, well, it's just like Vera Miles and uh, Janet Lee's boyfriend and Psycho. And, and no, it is. I mean, but at the same time, it's it's quite different because, I mean, they are investigating the same kind of way, except for it's a hooker and a minor. <laughs> so yeah. it's a little <laughs> bit different. Yeah. And I think the thing is, as well, the investigation and things, there is no Arbogast character in this. There's no private investigator looking into this at all um, and really there's 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 less of the there's less of the the investigation of the, the, the prostitute and the boy character is more involved in the investigation of Janet Lee's character and her former boyfriend or, or, or who was her boyfriend at the time you know their investigation is a lot more because we're not in a small town in the middle of nowhere travelling from a shop to a house no we're, big city yeah, we're in a big city, so it's a completely different environment. If anything, if, I mean, if, if he's guilty of anything, is he's of, um, and I don't even think this is a bad thing, is basically takes the fundamental principles of 
what has happened in Psycho and just modernises them in a way which is more kind of with, with more issues that were affecting people in, in the 80s STDs affected people in the 80s it didn't affect people in the 60s you weren't hearing many people walking around you know it wasn't as big an issue as it was in the 80s um, <laughs> that, that, that big city lifestyle you know it, it was far more prevalent on the 80s you know there's a griminess about about New York of that time as well, the 80s kind of feel in New York where, you know, the subways weren't safe, getting on trains weren't safe because of gangs of people. I love the fact that he touches on these elements as well, and w- which makes the movie feel different. I mean, yeah, the, it's still at its fundamental basic, does kind of feel like it's, it's banging the beats of Psycho. I just think that it does a disservice for people to write off as a rip-off. Oh, no, the- like, it, it, for me, like, it, it introduces more villains and more threat. Like, like you were saying with the subway, like, like, like she's already got a killer after her, and then to add this gang of rapists or murderers, I mean, to me, it just, it, it adds another layer, and, and I think it, you, you really do have to separate the films, because I feel like this one, it just, it does things... I mean, I don't. It's hard to say because Psycho is so balls out, but this one I feel like for the '80s was like really balls out. Yeah, I think. But the, 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 what, what we'll come back and say is, if you can track back pretty much the majority of modern horror mo- horror movies to Psycho, right? You say that on some level as a proto slasher. Slashers kind of take that. Halloween kind of takes on some level the the kind of the knifed killer who's in the shadows and runs with that a bit further than they do in Psycho. I mean, you didn't see people running after Halloween with pitchforks and torches saying, you've ripped off Psycho! Um, But because De Palma has a guy that dresses like a woman and a shower sequence, it becomes more prevalent that it's a a Psycho That's probably it. What you just said there is probably... It's probably the main reason that yeah. people connect them and, and try to, uh, I don't know, tear them apart. Yeah, I mean, even even your kind of even your giallos, your Italian horror giallos, I think on some level are more influenced and pay more homage to something like Psycho than necessarily Dress to Kill does, and that kind of that kind of De Palma kind of pulp um, horror thriller style that he really kind of throws in. To that movie is one of the reasons that I keep going back to it. It's one of those movies I can shove on anytime I want and sit back and enjoy it. And it's got quirky characters. It's got hot women. Um, it's got it's got good kills. It's got Michael Caine in a wig. Um, I mean, <laughs> what, what more could you want from a movie? Uh, is there anything else you want to say about this one before we grade it, Johnny? Uh, you know what? I'm going to sell everybody on this movie in just one phrase. Do it. Nan- Nancy Allen in black lingerie on Michael Caine's desk while he's dressed as a woman. (laughs) (laughs) If that does not make you want to see this movie, then I don't know if we can speak. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's your movie. (laughs) This movie, I mean, seriously, it's, it's, I mean, there's not a whole lot more to say about it. I mean, it's a good movie. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, if I was to press you, in fact, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, this one to me is uh, I'll give it a four and a half out of five. That I'm going to knock it down for a couple of reasons. Um, the couple of reasons are, even though I've watched it loads and I can watch it as many times as I want, um, the couple of reasons that are is that some of the scenes do feel painfully dated because they are 1980s, as 80s, and um, I, you know, some of it are like. Some of the the not all the performances in this one are as rounded as Psycho. As Psycho, you get that feeling that you know everyone's firing on their A game, even the small characters. There are a couple of characters that like the gangs are pretty 
racially stereotyped, if I'm being honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even the way they talk, gangs don't speak like that. Yeah. Um, you know, the Palma was very close-minded with that. Yeah, that, that, that to me is one of these things where I'm watching, like, really, the Palma? No, I'm thinking it is the 1980s, but I'm still thinking, really? really that's Brian? what people thought. I think that's what people actually believed. Well, you look at any 80s movie where you, where you have a group of black hooligans in that movie, they're all played exactly the same way. They all wear clothes that make them look like they bought them from a, a like a reject shop and Michael Jackson and you know all these sort of things. Like <laughs> I, they, they, none of them look realistic. They, they're, they're almost stereotype caricatures. And I, I, that to me is one of those things where I'm like that. If you you spent so much time crafting everything else, it seems lazy that you would put them in there. So that, that kind of takes a, a slight hint there. The, the 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 scientific kid as a character is pretty cool, but there's levels of disbelief to me that he makes his own homemade mace he can connect <laughs> up a, a you know a sim device from a fucking you know that he can hack through a wall and listen to what people are saying using like a personal cassette player and a headphone you know there's a bit of a, the A-team in there as well which I'm like oh, I don't know if I can get by that the rest of it though fucking awesome I love this movie really really love it um, it gets a four and a half out of five for me what about yourself Johnny how do you grade it uh, you know, it's going to sound really weird to say it, and sorry, I'm stuttering a little bit. I, I'm going to give it a four. The yeah. reason I, I give it a four is is I do love this movie. For me, there are a couple scenes that absolutely just they linger too long. Uh-huh. Um, one of them is the museum scene. Right. At the, for me, like it's a scene that I understand they're they're trying to set up characters and what's going on, but I feel like it could have been a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the same goes with the uh, the end dream sequence with Nancy Allen because you look at all these other movies that have stingers at the end with the, the dream sequence where it's a, it's a real quick scare and then they wake up. And this one went on for a long time. She's in that shower for a long time <laughs> knowing there's someone there. And I'm like, this has got to end soon. So yeah. for me, it's like, it's just a couple of the more lingering scenes that I feel if they cut it down, it could be a five. It, uh, easily a five. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you had the nail on the head. That end, that, that dream sequence at the end is lengthy, actually. Very yeah. lengthy. Like yeah. you, you look at the time and you're like, "Wow, this movie is you know an hour and forty minutes, and there's twelve minutes left, and this you're in the last scene." Yeah, you kind of think to yourself, you know, if you're Brian De Palma, you know, and your your wife is showering, you you get to see that whenever you want. You don't need to film it for twelve minutes. <laughs> well, uh, if you're going to film it, at least be more explicit. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Johnny, for coming on the show. If you want to, thank you. Your uh, locations for your show out, so people know where they can check it out. You can uh, go to KrugerNation.com on iTunes, search Kruger Nation. Uh, I'm Johnny Krug on Facebook and Twitter. I'm working on the new episode, actually, I would say as we speak, but I'm actually working with you right now. But um, <laughs> before we did this, and, and actually later, I'm going to be trying to uh, edit the new episode, which is about the town that dreaded sundown, the original Ooh. from 76, and the uh, remake sequel uh, companion piece from last year. Oh. Oh, I look forward to that one because I, I I did I did quite like that um, remake sequel companion thing. Me too, like yeah. a lot. <laughs> I thought I thought it was a lot better than what I was expecting it to be. So I look forward to that. It's always it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. And um, well, thank you. Think, yeah, like I, I love coming on here. I think we've already established the next time you come on at Sisters. Um, I just need to find a movie that I can think of that can go with it. We'll need to get our thinking caps on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, until the next time I speak to you, take care. Um, I am going to take a very short break just now. When I come back, I'm going to be closing out the show right after this. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. 
Warning, the Midnight Horror Show is not safe for work and is definitely not for the faint of heart. The following is a small sample of what you'll hear live every Wednesday night at 7 at allradiox.com. I ain't heard from you shitheads for fucking years. Now, Webula, we do this thing that's called a live radio show on the internet. And so there's people that interact with us. Yeah, they're listening and responding to us right now in real time. Who, who, who's talking shit? <laughs> fuck, Somebody's talking shit? Someone named Fuckface. And so then, fuck you, Fuckface. <laughs> oh, you think we'll go off on tangents? <laughs> on the Midnight Horror <laughs> Have Show? you ever listened to this show before, Mark? <laughs> he was masturbating into the, the corpse of a fucking beheaded fish. Fucking uh, nasty motherfucker. <laughs> we're going to end the show on corpse fucking this time, apparently. Anytime you talk about necophilia, you're talking... It's going to take a certain kind of person to watch it. Yes, it's a charmed life. Fuck you. <laughs> you can hear the Midnight Horror Show live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday night at allradiox.com or download the show on iTunes, Podomatic, or at the allradiox.com page. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. You've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. That was episode number 49 with reviews of Psycho and Dress to Kill. Hope you enjoyed that show. Um, I hope you go out and check out Kruger Nation. They've just dropped another brand new episode for you all out there. Johnny Krug's like one of the coolest guys um, in podcasting. I genuinely think the dude is absolutely fucking awesome. And uh, whenever that guy puts a show out, it's like one of... I know for a fact it's just going to jump the queue over pretty much anything else that I have to listen to. It just goes straight in at the top. The guy is fucking awesome. Uh, can't wait to have him back on the show, hopefully sometime very very soon. Um, congratulations to the winner of our competition. Um, if you drop us your details um, by way of message or by email to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com I will post that out to you this week and I hope that you enjoy your Blu-ray. And remember you can also ask questions or advice on Bazzy's Basement to the Baz by way of an email to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com in the header put Bazzy's Basement so, um, next week uh, you'll get a conversation between myself and The Baz. It's a bonus content episode where we are talking about all the movies that we've seen, what we're looking forward to in the rest of the year. It's going to be quite fun and potentially before then or slightly after then. We'll see how it works out. Uh, you'll hear the interview that I conducted with Graham Humphreys, which is a lot of fun. I can't wait for you to check that out. Um, and make sure that you check out his website and uh, buy some of his uh, fucking brilliant prints. I can't wait for him to design the podcast under the stairs print. It's going to fucking blow minds. I cannot wait at all. Um, remember, you can check out the podcast under the stairs on Legion Podcast Network through iTunes, Stitcher, um, or on our website, which is podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com. Um, you can also check out some of the other shows that I do online uh, through various different means. You can check out the Midnight Horror Show. Um, we have finally found a home, a brand new home for that show since leaving All Radio X. Um, we basically have uh, our own radio station now and our own website 
where you can log in and listen to some of the back catalogue as well as the live shows um, every Wednesday night, 7pm Eastern Standard Time. Uh, bring your friends uh, and tell your friends. Um, to check out that show, you go to www.tmhsradio.com. Um, you can also listen to shows like Duncan and Bo Come Correct, which is currently on a hiatus, but the entire season is up on Legion Podcast Network, as well as... Doing the nasty, myself and Mr. Andy Blockley from the Big Horn Little Podcast, looking at all the movies, L72 on the video nasty list, and that can be listened to exclusively through Horrorphilia. While you're over there, give some love to some of the other shows over on Horrorphilia, including Kiss the Goat. Like, honestly, between that and Kruger Nation, um, my, my weeks are pretty much set. Fucking awesome shows. And like I say, give some love uh, to Johnny Krug out there. Um, the man deserves your love. <laughs> I think that's everything this week. I can't think of anything I've missed. Um, thanks again for the support. The download figures in February were fucking insane. Um, already, we look like we're on target to break those numbers in March which once again just blows my mind. Every month has went from strength to strength. The page has been fantastic. Keep coming over and starting conversations, discussion threads on movies you've seen, movies you're looking forward to seeing, um, if you want to post reviews of what you've seen, if you want to just talk about horror in general, anything, movies, uh, computer games, books, TV shows, anyone else out there looking forward to the new season of Hannibal? Can't just be me. Has anyone started watching the new season of Bates Motel? That can't just be me either. Let me know what you think. Um, and also, let's see if we can get a wee discussion thread going on um, the American remake of The Returned. Uh, I think I'm going to be starting that this week. And I love the French season, so um, I'm always sceptical of these things. So, yeah, um, I'm going to jump out just now. And uh, thanks very much for checking out the show, guys. Until I speak to you again, please take care of yourselves out there. I'll be speaking to you sooner than you think. This is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from the void, signing off. <laughs>